Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. In this lecture, former government drugs adviser Professor David Nutt talks about the regulation of drugs, including alcohol and tobacco. Well, thank you very much. It's great to be here. Um, I'll give you a bit of an introduction. So I'm a psychiatrist, and um, with a name like Nutt, there weren't many options. <laughs> and the others were less appealing than the brain, I can tell you. Um, uh, I'm a researcher. I spent most of my professional life in, in medicine doing research. It's why I went into medicine in the first place. Uh, I've a parent. I've managed to get four children through, through the teenage years almost, and... Uh, I tell you, that's a serious learning experience for anyone who's done it, and uh, not one I want to repeat, which is why I got very interested in this topic. I've been in the West Country a long time. I like Bath. Um, some of my collaborators, like Steve Husbands, are here, and we still have joint students uh, doing research here. I was at Bristol for over 20 years, and I was recently um, seduced away to London because uh, they've got better brain imaging facilities, which is my main research interest. And, of course, I'm an ex-government drugs advisor, which is the only reason you've ever heard of me and why I'm here today, I guess. But I'm happy to talk about the pharmacology of noradrenaline if you really want to. And this tells a story. This is a brilliant caricature, not least because it makes me look younger and more attractive than I really am. <laughs> but also, it sums up the key issues. And you see... Uh, the first thing is I wear a white, I'm wearing a white coat, which, of course, I never do, psychiatrists. In fact, doctors don't wear white coats anymore, but, uh, but the, uh, the media insists that if they film you, you've got to have a white coat, otherwise you're not a credible scientist, so be warned. Uh, the book of cannabis is falling from my hands, but the key thing to look at is down here, the scales of justice. You see the scales of justice there on the left-hand side, beer and fags, weighing down those on the right-hand side, those plastic bags with certain substances in. I don't know what they are, and actually no one does really, but uh, that's the question which is more dangerous. What we know, the drugs we know and love, and the drugs we don't. And, uh, but this is a remarkable coincidence of timing, because up here you see something really intriguing. <laughs> so for those of you who don't know who Andre Agassi was, he was actually a very good American tennis player, and uh, he won Wimbledon, and soon after winning Wimbledon, he did the mandatory drug tests, and he, turned, he tested positive for methylamphetamine, which Americans call crystal meth. And, uh, and that presented the tennis authorities with a huge problem, because uh, their rules said he would be banned for at least two years if he was uh, um, found to have taken uh, this kind of substance. A bit like being a Bath rugby player, really. And... Um, <laughs> Uh, they didn't know what to do because it would have thrown the whole game into a complete turmoil, banning the, Olympic, the, the, the Wimbledon champion. So they adopted what I think was actually quite a, a very British approach. They decided to ask him to tell the truth. And they said, Andre, did you take crystal meth? And he said, of course not. Uh, or of course not. And, um, and he said, okay, that's, ooh, that's all right then. Boy, <laughs> back to playing tennis. And... Um, and his life went on until he retired and decided he wanted to uh, write his autobiography, and he did. And then he decided to tell, about, tell the truth about what happened. And we don't know why, whether, whether it was his 
guilt lying on his shoulders that maybe he'd kind of misled the world. Or whether it was a fact he probably got a few more million dollars because he sold many thousands more copies because that was how the book was sold. It was an expose of his drug use rather than any commentary on his tennis ability. Uh, And that really does sum up the tremendous ambivalence that we as as humans and society has to drug use. We are very, or some of us are, certainly institutions that we we support are very, very anti-drug use. But individuals are quite fascinated by those people who do do use drugs. And uh, and one of the reasons I got into the sort of situation I, I am in is that I've tried to sort of cut through this this, this kind of hypocrisy that has pervaded the whole debate about drugs for, well, for centuries, in fact. And the reason you know about me is because the media got very interested in my sacking, and the media were completely divided. And the BBC were very supportive, and the broadsheets were on my side. Um, but there were other newspapers. Some of you, you won't know what these are, but... <laughs> I hope I'm not contaminating you by introducing them to your consciousness, but they, they thought I was uh, rather less uh, good. And uh, uh, Melanie Phillips, who's my sort of uh, arch nemesis in the, uh, in the mail, called me part of a manipulative, subversive, and lethally dangerous clique. Now, you know, I'm going to get the T-shirt one day with that on, but... Um, <laughs> The only problem, and I, don't, I, don't, I actually don't disagree with her, the only problem I have is I haven't yet met, met anyone else who's part of that clique. So if you're in the room, could you come and speak to me afterwards, please? And Private Eye loved it. And Private Eye have really given a wonderful running commentary on the whole thing. So as they said, the Daily Mail's view was that Professor Nutcase must be sacked and the Guardian, Professor Nut Guilty, must be reinstated. And I do often wonder whether... If my name had been something different, like, you know, Blinkensop, Smythe or something with a hyphen, it could all have just blown over. But nuts really does capture people, doesn't it? Hey, the public were interested. I hadn't really known what Facebook was until I was sacked. And then I discovered that uh, Students for Sensible Drug Policy had set up a Facebook site and they gathered over 30,000 supporters. 2,000 scientists signed a petition to the Prime Minister under the new transparent government approach we have where you can petition on anything if you get enough enough uh, signatories asking my reinstatement um, that fell on very deaf ears and uh, and there was a protest outside Downing Street which I was very heartened by and if, um, and if any of you were there thank you very much so why was I sacked? Well it's not clear um, it may never be clear because it may never have really been thought through um, I'm hoping that uh, when Alan Johnson writes his memoirs he might explain blame what happened. Uh, maybe his wife will, because she might write her sooner, I guess. But um, <laughs> Anyway, they said I was getting involved in policy, and what I was saying was, well, current drug policy is not evidence-based, and scientists are supposed to make decisions based on evidence. They said I was giving mixed messages, and what I said was, well, since we just banned GHB and we're banning GBL, uh, since alcohol is almost the same in terms of its uh, chemistry and pharmacology, we would probably ban that if it was discovered today. They said they had a loss of confidence in me, which of course translates into a loss of confidence in my ability to toe the line. And that I hadn't told them I was going to make public a lecture I'd given. 
And this was a lecture I'd given a few months before, a lecture I'd actually given that had been prepared in part by the Home Office, which the Home Office had actually effectively sanctioned. But they were very unhappy when it went into the public domain, as opposed to being just given to a group of uh, interested people. And I have to say, I, I truly, it never ever crossed my mind that you'd expect to get clearance from a, uh, a minister to publish an academic lecture. I mean, and the fact that they could even think that, that uh, uh, the chairman of a scientific advisory panel would get permission, tells you that their attitude to science has to be wrong. Of course, there is another theory. This is the cock-up theory, which is that they didn't really want to sack me, but kind of circumstances forced it to happen. Um, the science minister, Lord Drayson, said uh, that if he'd been asked by the Home Secretary uh, whether I should be sacked, he'd have been very upset about it, because as a scientist, I effectively uh, was being supervised by his ministry. But the problem was Actually, that weekend he was in Japan racing his classic medical. He couldn't be contacted. Um, the government chief scientist, uh, Beddington, John Beddington, was very supportive. He said he backed me in my claims that alcohol and cigarettes are more harmful than cannabis. Of course he's right, he said. Unfortunately, he said it when he came back from Kazakhstan, which, where he was, that's where I guess scientists go to contemplate things. And... Um, Obviously, government phones don't work in Kazakhstan. So, uh, we don't know exactly what happened. Maybe we will do one day. But what it highlights is this tension between science and policy. A tension which was really uh, formulated by Churchill, uh, who said scientists should be on tap, not on top. And uh, politicians of all persuasions um, have really endorsed that ever since. And the, the sort of ritual has been that scientists do science and politicians do politics. And we keep into our own spheres of influence and knowledge. And, and in a way, that's perfectly acceptable. However, what we found in the last government was that sometimes when it suited them, they, politicians started to do science. So Gordon Brown, when he came, took over from Tony Blair as the, uh, the, the Prime Minister and... Uh, decided he was going to go to the country. He was going to try to get uh, a majority. Um, and uh, as he was contemplating that, he decided to lay out his policy. And one of his policies was that cannabis should be regraded to Class B because skunk is lethal. Now, he said that without asking us, and uh, I don't know, but in English, that's not a correct statement. Whether it is in Scottish, I've not yet found out. But... Um, <laughs> I suspect he's not in Scottish either. And then the Home Secretary, Jackie Smith, said that uh, we got it wrong when we talked to, when we um, effectively said that alcohol caused more brain damage than ecstasy. She said that the Advisory Council on the Misuse of Drugs, which has spent an enormous amount of time reviewing ecstasy, got it wrong. And then Alan Johnson, who took over from Jackie Smith uh, when she was uh, sacked for misleading the country about where she lived. Um, he said we got it wrong on cannabis. We spent seven years, we reviewed the whole literature on cannabis three times, and we concluded it wasn't a major cause of schizophrenia. He said, look, you know, you've done, we don't, I don't do you believe you, because a friend of mine who happens to be a you know, prison governor told me categorically that cannabis does cause schizophrenia. So there. And 
when I had the temerity to say, well, all right, if that's the way you want to play it, you know, I'll tell you that your policy on alcohol is rubbish, I got sacked. <laughs> that's what I said. I said the drug laws were not based on science and therefore almost certainly unjust, which is the worst thing a law can be. And that the focus that the government had on things like cannabis and ecstasy, which was, they were focusing on them simply as a way of cultivating public support for the Labour Party, was actually a, either at the best was misguided and at the worst was a cynical, cynical ploy to avoid people confronting the real killer, which is alcohol. So let's start from first principles, since some of you are scientists. And this is a lecture has been hosted by some chemists. What is a drug? I asked them over tea and they told me it was some complicated thing. But anyway, I'll tell you, it's actually simpler than that. This is what a drug is. A drug is something when given... And there are one or two in the audience whose careers have been made on that. And I'm one of them. And he's one of them. Uh, there's another take on this, which is um, a drug is something a politician once used but now regrets. And, Some politicians are honest. Tim Yeo was an honest Conservative MP who actually did like smoking cannabis when he used to do it. Maybe he still does, I don't know. Um, the Cameron stories, into, there's some school children here, is that right? Are there some, for the Redland, Redland, hi, are there some school children? Put your hands up. That's what you do at school, isn't it? Yeah, right. Okay. You may go to the loop. Um, and I just want to tell you a little bit about the uh, Eaton experiment, which is an interesting natural experiment which was done with... David Cameron and a guy called Josh Astor. And these were both oh, students at Eton in 1982. And they were found using cannabis in their house. And they were actually listening to UB40, which is not house music, but I guess it was a, that term wasn't around at the time. Anyway, um, and a few others were caught. And this is what happened to David Cameron. So he, um, because he'd only smoked and not sold the drug, he was not thrown out. In fact, he was fined. Uh, I don't know how much. He was gated, which means he wasn't allowed into town to the tea shop on a Saturday afternoon. And he was given a Georgic, whatever that means, but it, was, it, sounds, it says it was copying out hundreds of lines of Latin. And I, I really want him to tell us what those Latin lines were, because I, I, I want them to be sort of non-fumari cannabis or something, but I don't know what they were. So the, the, the headmaster took a three-pronged strategy. Some were expelled, and some were suspended, and some were gated. And one of the ones who was expelled was Astor, who's um, from a, a very famous family, the Astors, very influential family in British politics. And his life subsequently has been chaotic, and he's had multiple uh, arrests for, for drug use and uh, drug dependence. Whereas Cameron was kept at school, was mentored, despite being the most difficult boy he'd ever taught, as the headmaster said. And, of course, he went on to become uh, a successful politician. And when he was called David, um, uh, now he's Dave, of course, like me, but then he was David Cameron, uh, the MP, and he, he was very progressive on drugs. Cameron's always had a very sensible view. When he disagreed, he opposed the, the banning of raves in the 19, early 1990s when Michael Howard decided to ban them on the grounds that they were a threat to public order. And um, he also was a, very, a voice of reason on ecstasy, when the, uh, the Home Affairs Select Committee looked at the drug laws, he said ecstasy should not be a Class A drug. And in fact, he continued to say that 
when he was elected to be the head of the Tory party. Uh, and then the next day, after he said it, he changed his mind because he was told by other Tories that if he carried on saying that, he wouldn't get elected. Well, he hasn't been really, but anyway. Um, but the message is there. That we, it's a, that, that, and I tell you this because it's important you people know about this. It's important they know you can succeed in politics even if you do use drugs that are illegal, provided you're looked after in an appropriate way by your headmaster, your headmistress, and by society. Because if he'd got a criminal record for smoking cannabis, he would not be prime minister. And that's one of the key, maybe the key argument I'm going to make to you today, that criminalising people changes their life so much that you should only do it if you're really sure you're doing good. And in most cases, criminalising people for drug use does nothing much other than harm. There, of course, there are other perspectives on drug use, and this is the drinks industry perspective, that, that basically, you know, if drugs are bad, um, because it, they really get in the way of your drinking, and you laugh, this is true, the drugs industry has lobbied powerfully for 20 years to limit access to anything other than alcohol. And many, many people do not understand that alcohol is a drug. Go home and ask your parents tonight, is alcohol a drug? As they slurp their Chardonnay or whatever. And they'll say, of course not. Otherwise, it wouldn't be legal, would it? And that's a problem. And the media struggle, the Metro, which is an offshoot of the mail, don't understand that alcohol and, and cigarettes and tobacco are, are drugs. Although the broadsheets do. The broadsheets do understand this. So again, there's tension in society. And one of the, I'm really pleased to be able to give public lectures like this because it, it's not often that the... The concept that alcohol is a drug is properly relayed in, into a kind of educated audience. So what is a drug? Well, it's a chemical which, when you take, produces physiological changes. And in the context of what we're talking about today, is it's changes in the brain. People take drugs, recreational drugs, because they get in the brain, and they do good things. But sometimes they do bad things. And this contrasts two young people taking two different drugs. On the, the right-hand side is Leah Betts lying in her intensive care bed uh, before she died. This is a, a girl who, on her 18th birthday, took a couple of ecstasy tablets. And because she believed that if she, ecstasy, um, the side effects of ecstasy could be uh, uh, attenuated by drinking lots of water, she drank lots of water. Now, she was misguided in that. Her knowledge was wrong. You only need to drink lots of water if you're dancing a lot and sweating a lot. And she was just organising her 18th birthday party. And so she died of water poisoning. And the guy on the left is a student from Exeter University who was in the golf team, and after a golf match, he engaged in a drinking game, and uh, he wasn't very good at it, and he, so he kept losing, and he kept drinking till he died. And uh, so he died of alcohol poisoning. And that's one of the reasons why drinking games should not be allowed, because they actually encourage people to kill themselves. And binging to death is actually surprisingly common. This is a young man uh, on his 18th birthday, and his friends took him out, and they gave him quite a lot to drink, thinking they were giving him a good time. And he went home very drunk, and he fell asleep, and he didn't wake up. And uh, this is the most ridiculous one I've heard recently. This is a man who drank a pint of vodka in four seconds. And uh, I have no idea why he did it. We will never know because he's dead too. And the alcohol poisoning is common. 
about three people a week, about 150 people a year die of acute alcohol poisoning just from being drunk, mostly young people, often on their birthdays. And one of the reasons most authorities who look at the relative harms of cannabis and, and alcohol conclude that cannabis is less toxic is because you can overdose on cannabis. Gordon Brown is quite wrong. Cannabis is not lethal, even skunk, whereas alcohol is lethal. And it doesn't just kill you by poisoning, it kills you by accidents and fights and falling under cars and falling out of windows, etc. Uh, and it's also, in the ACMD, when I was on that committee in 2004, we reviewed date rape drugs. A lot of concern about rohypnol and stuff. So we did a very systematic review. We did some research as well. Some police forces did some research on this. And half of all date rapes are just alcohol, and half are alcohol plus something else. Uh, occasionally rohypnol, occasionally GHB, occasionally other benzos, occasionally cocaine, occasionally... But alcohol is overridingly the major cause of date rape, and it may actually encourage the use of other drugs because intoxication leads people to do strange things, as I will show you later. And alcohol is a very costly disorder. These are the latest figures. I know they're 2003, with the new data coming out next year, so be interesting to see them, but in terms of disability costs across Europe, alcohol is almost as much as dementia and beaten only by depression. And other drugs are about a third that of alcohol. So alcohol is a hugely, hugely expensive disorder. And we've seen a surge, a tidal wave of hospital-related admissions due to drink. In 95, 96, there were 94,000, and 10 years on, there are 208,000. And last year, there were a million hospital episodes, of which probably about 240,000 were admissions, and the rest were casualty. 13,000 under-18s admitted mostly with alcohol poisoning. Compare that with ecstasy, 2,000, <coughs> cannabis, 700. So the healthcare costs of alcohol are vast. And there's a lot of social damage. Until... Until the Gulf oil spill, the largest environmental catastrophe was Exxon Valdez, an uh, oil tanker that went aground off the coast of Alaska, and that was because the captain was extremely drunk and also tired. And most of the, po the Polish parliament were killed last year because they tried to land under the direction of the head of the Air Force, who was drunk, and insisted they landed in the fog when they didn't have the right landing gear. And we've seen politicians in our lifetime, you know, most of you won't remember George Brown, but he was a, a serious competitor to Harold Wilson to um, be Prime Minister back in the 60s. Uh, and Charles Kennedy, the head of the FDP, who, uh, LDP, sorry, now, who had to resign because of his drinking. So alcohol affects everyone. And in fact, I bet there's no one in this room whose family, if you take the extended family, uh, aunts and uncles, and that hasn't got someone who's had problems with alcohol. And I'm going to show you two graphs looking at what's happened in the last 40 years. And I'm going back to 1971 for a good reason, because that's when the Misuse of Drugs Act came in. And since 1971, you see the amount of alcohol, the red line, has about doubled. The amount of absolute alcohol has gone from about 7 litres to about 12 litres. Um, and this is the affordability of alcohol. As the affordability has gone up, it's become more affordable, so consumption has gone up. And there's a very good relationship between the affordability of alcohol and how much people drink. And here are those hospital admissions I showed you going up 
dramatically in that last 10 years. And what's happened is that this wave, this rise in alcohol consumption in the 60s and 70s, 20, 30 years on, is leading to this massive rise in damage from alcohol. So this isn't damage occurring in young people. This is damage occurring in middle-aged people. And when we look at the last 40 years, we look at a range of disorders. We look at what's called standardised mortality rates. You see, over those 40 years, for every disorder, apart from liver disease, mortality has fallen. But mortality from liver disease has gone up two and a half times. So this is an epidemic. If we had this kind of epidemic in relation to things like SARS or HIV, we would be hysterical. But because it's alcohol and we all drink, we don't care. And look at this. This is the most terrifying data. Deaths in middle-aged men in Scotland and in England from liver disease. And here's the women on this side. Now, when I trained in medicine, when I first started seeing patients about here, cirrhosis is what the French got. We didn't see, it was rare to see it in Britain. Now, the, the, the Scotch overtook the French uh, about 15 years ago. We've overtaken them now. The Scottish have the highest rates of cirrhosis in the world and the highest rates of binging in the world, which is why they're desperate to do something about their alcohol consumption. And that's true for their men and their women. And we're catching up. We're seeing now in my clinical practice women under 30 with permanent brain damage from drinking alcohol uh, from the age of about 12, 13. The youngest liver transplant was a 23-year-old girl who'd been drinking and almost eating nothing since she was 10. So there, are, there, are damage, there, there is a wave of, of damage. In 10 years' time, alcohol-related disease will kill more people than heart disease. It will become the number one killer. And, uh, and we still don't even accept that. Most politicians, even though they know it's true, they will not tell you that. They won't admit to it. But then there's cannabis to worry about. They don't, this is the argument. Well, you know, alcohol's all right, but cannabis is a real killer. That's um, Alan Johnson. That's me, I think, judging by the moustache there. <laughs> So in the same time, the last 40 years, cannabis consumption in England has gone up 20 times, from about half a million users to about 10 million users. And that's been mirrored in every Western country. So 20 times as opposed to twice for alcohol. Now, everyone's concerned about schizophrenia. Well, you'd imagine that there would be an increase in schizophrenia if it caused schizophrenia. And this is the British data which suggests that schizophrenia is actually falling slightly, it's certainly not rising. Psychosis levels are pretty static, maybe falling. Nowhere in the Western world has that 20-fold increase in use translated into any increase in schizophrenia. So the causality question is very, very, very unclear. In fact, we estimated that you have to stop 5,000 young men ever smoking cannabis to save one case of schizophrenia. And that is not a viable public health approach, particularly if you're using criminal sanctions to stop people smoking, because the costs of that are so overwhelming, both in terms of economics and also in terms of justice. And these are the, the kind of data we have to really think about in terms of making decisions. The size of the pie is the number of users, and the red sectors are the proportion of people who will die from the drug. So tobacco, about half of all smokers die of smoking-related disorders, about 20% of all drinkers, about 20% of all heroin users, a small but unknown amount, maybe 5 
less than 5% of cannabis users die of cannabis and ecstasy. It's vanishingly small. So dis there's still this disproportionate burden of mortality driven by the drugs which are, are legal and marketed. And one of the reasons that our recent report in the Lancet November last year came to the conclusion that alcohol was the most harmful drug in Britain is because the social harms of alcohol are so vast. And those include road traffic accidents, hospital costs, but also the hidden harms, the, the domestic violence, the spousal abuse, the sexual abuse of children, so much of which is driven by uh, alcohol in the home. And a lot of people were surprised by this. They, the fact that alcohol could actually end up being the most harmful drug in Britain did, did you know, I, I think maybe may get a few people to sit up and take notice. Uh, the cartoonists were, of course, on the ball, as always. And uh, the reality is, for an alcoholic, who stopping drinking and switching to pharmaceutical heroin would probably elongate their lives, paradoxically. Heroin kills people mostly because of the infections that go with it rather than the drug itself. So that's the background. This is how drugs are controlled in this country. Uh, it's an unusual arrangement because in most countries all drugs are controlled by the government department that looks after health. But in Britain we put health medicines into the Department of Health under the Medicines Act and we put recreational drugs under the Home Office. So we try to control recreational drugs through criminal sanctions. And I say very few countries in the world do that. But we do, and we've done since 1971. There are some drugs which are not controlled. There's drugs like coffee, which is a, and cat. Cat is a chewable form of coffee, and, and coffee is a drinkable form of cat. These are mild stimulants, which are just sold and, and taxed with VAT. And over here, we have the more addictive drugs. Governments know they're addictive, so they tax them more and more because they know that there is uh, income to be generated from them, but also to deter use to some extent. And they also regulate the sales. Well, they used to regulate sales. Now, the sales of alcohol and tobacco are almost unregulated because of the 24-hour opening of shops and supermarkets. Now, about six years ago, when I worked for the government and the Department of Trade and Industry and produced the Foresight Report on, on drugs in the future, uh, we pointed out several things. We pointed out that one of the problems with this structure is that many drugs are both medicines and recreational drugs. And that gets people into real difficulties. It gets the police into difficulties. It gets users sometimes into difficulties. If it's prescribable, how can it be illegal? But we also pointed out that the world was changing and that the internet was making... It really was a global village now. And that new synthetic drugs like methadrone and the ability to buy over the internet meant that the current way we regulate drugs just couldn't work. It, it, because you can just type in and get anything you like from anywhere in the world. And we said, you've got to do something about this if you're going to think about it at the very least, because you really can't use the old misuse of drugs acts. You can't use the old procedures. It will change. And they said, oh, thank you very much, but we'll um, carry on as we are. Thank you. So what is the old act? Well, the old act is actually a very interesting piece of legislation. It, it's the current uh, regulations for interest rates are modelled on it. As you know, one of the good things, maybe one of the very few good things Gordon Brown did, was actually take decision-making about interest rates out of Parliament and gave it to the Bank of England. And he did that because he knew that 
party political posturing over interest rates would destabilize the economy. If people had to be more macho on rates than the other, then you'd actually make bad decisions. So he said, let's let experts decide on interest rates. Well, in 1971, Jim Callaghan was there before him. He reasoned that the same thing was true of drugs. If you let politicians argue about drugs, they will always want to lock people up forever for having a, a spliff in their pocket, because that's the more macho you are, the better you uh, the more likely you are to get elected is the view. So he said, let's have an expert committee, the Advisory Council on the Misuse of Drugs, to decide on drug harms, take it out of politics. So they did. And the ACMD existed since that time and still does. And by and large, politicians listen to the ACMD. And this is the politician who perhaps exemplifies that uh, statement most clearly. Margaret Thatcher. Now, in 1994, the ACMD went to her and said... We're going to have an AIDS epidemic, uh, and it's going to be largely fueled by intravenous drug users. So what we have to do is we have to do something to stop them transmitting their infections to each other. And that's going to be a thing called needle exchange. Clean needles. And she said, ah, Tories don't do needle exchange. And you think, that resonates a bit, doesn't it? Maybe they still, still don't. Anyway... The ACMD said to her, well, you have a choice. It's very simple. You either do needle exchange or you do AIDS. You know, what, what would Tories prefer to do? And she said, OK, all right, we'll do needle exchange. And so she turned, and that may be the only time in her life that she actually turned, but she listened to the scientists. And we had the lowest rates of HIV from intravenous drug users in Europe. We led the world in terms of that harm reduction policy. So she was, uh, she at least was a courageous politician prepared to accept something that was unpalatable to her party because it was the best advice. Just one other piece of information about the misuse of drugs. Actually, it's a complicated st structure. Um, drugs are classed either as very high risk, high risk, or moderate risk. You're not allowed to say low risk because that means they're legal. You know, I mean, people wouldn't understand that. Um, a, B, and C. Some drugs are medicines, they're green. Some drugs have never been medicines, they're red. And some drugs have been medicines. Uh, cocaine, cannabis, clenbuterol are all medicines. MDMA was a medicine. But they're not currently medicines. So these, so there are different drugs in different classes and different schedules. Now this shows what's happened in the last 10 years. And I was on the ACMD for 10 years. And it shows several things. It shows a series of arrows. And you noticed all but one of the arrows go in that direction. All the solid arrows but that one go in this direction, which is the direction of more control, higher penalties. So drugs like ketamine and GHB and benzopiperazine, they were not controlled drugs when I joined the ACMD, and they are controlled drugs now, and I supported their being controlled. And I say that so people understand utterly that Melanie Phillips is wrong. You know, I have probably made more drugs illegal in this country than anyone else ever sitting on the ACMD. I'm, I have not pursued a liberal uh, approach to drugs. I've taken the view that if the Misuse of Drugs Act can work, we should do it. We should actually classify drugs appropriately. You'll see that the only drug which went down a class was this one. And the dotted line here, MDMA, ecstasy, was recommended to go down by the ACMD, but the government resisted. So cannabis went down in 2004 from, used to be either A or B, depending on formulation, to C. And that created an enormous amount of hostility in the media. And we spent the last five years, after subsequent five years, fighting this battle because people were desperate to move it back.
to Class B. And eventually Gordon Brown did. You will also notice that these three arrows are blue. And those are decisions that the government made against the advice of the ACMD. And you will notice the big blue arrow here. And this is where the story really gets interesting. The, 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 the change in policy started here. Because in 2004, mushrooms were legal. And then they were made Class A drugs in 2004. Now, we heard the government were going to do this. And we said to them, hang on, the Misuse of Drugs Act is a statutory instrument. You're not allowed to change the law on any drug without consulting the ACMD. And they said, oh. And they went away. And about two weeks later, they sent us an email on a Tuesday night saying, we're going to have a vote in the House on Thursday. We're going to go for Class A. What do you think? And we said, that's an insult. And there's no way we can do proper harm assessment on a drug in two days, and we're not going to, so on your head be it. So that decision was made. And now you might say, well, why was that decision? We couldn't understand why that decision was made at the time. It didn't make any sense whatsoever. But I think we're getting up to an election, and maybe that contributed. But on hindsight now, I've realised there was another, much bigger player here, which was changing the way politics was being conducted in this country. And Tony Blair, I think at that point, had decided he could win wars. He'd won the war on weapons of mass destruction, and he decided he was going to win the war on drugs. And I didn't know this at the time, and none of us did, because he convened a secret war cabinet to decide how to deal with the drug problem. And he didn't include the experts, ACMD, he just included police, military, and customs. And this war cabinet uh, has no minutes because that was the way in which he preferred to work. And they decided that they were going to wage the war on drugs because his good mate, George Bush, was waging such a successful war on drugs that we could surely do better. So he started with the mushrooms and he won the war on mushrooms, didn't he? Yeah, right. So now mushrooms are class A. Good. But there is collateral damage from waging war. And this has been well known by people who write about war, and uh, I've learnt this in hindsight, and subsequently, the first casualty of war is the truth, which is that mushrooms are highly dangerous. And once at war, all reason is treason. And of course, that's why I was sacked. I was actually fighting a war, I didn't even know I was fighting, but because I wasn't fighting it in the right way, and giving the right answers, I got sacked. So why are we fighting this war? Well, the justifications for the war are, again, not explicit. He doesn't write about it in his memoirs, so we have to surmise. But, I mean, by and large, the law about drugs is trying to reduce harms of drugs to society. And if it works, that'd be good. But it's also trying to reduce the harm to the user. And this is the model that the last Labour government took. We will criminalise you. We might even imprison you to protect you from the possible harms of drug use. And they did that. They did several things which were very unpleasant. They regraded cannabis from C to B, so it gives you up to five years in prison if you're caught in possession, 14 years for supply. But they made it an arrestable offence, so now the police can take you to the cells for 24 hours. They can search your house. And if you happen to be growing it, they can, uh, and they can have a, make a credible case which isn't that you are selling it. They can seize your assets, and they do that. And they do that to people with multiple sclerosis. Uh, and they stop them being able to pay their mortgage because once your assets are seized, you don't have an income. 
And there's a real problem I have with this, which is that about half young people try cannabis. Very few experience health harms. There's very, very little harm to society. So the current policy of criminalising users to deter use actually simply gives criminal records to people who aren't going to harm themselves, aren't going to harm others. And that criminalisation really screws up their future prospects. And, that, and, of course, that's the deterrent value. That is the argument that we've got to screw up a few people's lives to, to encourage the others. And, uh, but it won't have much impact on health. And more than that, it denies access of cannabis for medicinal purposes. So everything is in the same boat. And the question that's always bugged me is, is this just? And, of course, it isn't. Did it happen? Well, it did happen. The Home Secretaries were very efficient. They told the police to go and wage the war. The police waged the war. 88,000 convictions for cannabis possession in 2004. Five doubled in four years. And we saw police in tube stations in London with sniffer dogs randomly searching. Well, not random. If you look scruffy, they search you. Com illegal, I think, under, under human rights legislation. But that was the policy. Let's criminalise these people just for their own good. And, of course, there was injustice, a bigger injustice within that, which was the fact that there a, a, a disproportionate uh, number of people from ethnic minorities were prosecuted. Now, as a doctor, I've always been interested about the uh, philosophy of Hippocrates, one of the very first doctors, and... One of the things he said, which is still true today, is primum non nocere, first do no harm. And that's a key principle of medical ethics. And my view is that that ought to be a key principle of the law. The law should ideally do less, do more good than harm. But we don't test our laws like that. And one of the reasons we don't is it because we take the view, and I say we, I say many politicians take the view, that drug use is for pure, simply for pleasure. Now that's, of course, that's how politicians use drugs. But the rest of the world uses drugs uh, often to reduce suffering. And that, that isn't in the current debate. And that's why I'm making it very clear to you. Many people use drugs because they, it helps them deal with the misery in their life. And here's some examples. A quarter of all young male alcoholics have social anxiety. These people have to drink before they go to the party because they're so embarrassed. They, their speech dries up, they get flushed. They cannot communicate without alcohol. And it's a commonest treatable cause of alcoholism. And there's going to be a number of you in this room who's, whose lives will be blighted by that illness and who will become alcoholic, I guarantee. About half of older drinkers use alcohol to reduce stress and to help them relax. And there's going to be a lot of you in the audience who will go home and drink for that reason. A lot of cannabis users do the same. And many people with schizophrenia benefit from cannabis. And the worst thing of all about this misleading suggestion that cannabis causes schizophrenia is that doctors are blaming schizophrenics. Parents are blaming their children for causing their illness. And they're saying to schizophrenics, if you didn't smoke cannabis, you'd be well, which is rubbish. What you, when you speak to people with schizophrenia and say, why do you smoke cannabis? When it makes your voices worse, they say, well, because frankly, it makes everything else better. And the voices, you know, I can cope with the voices better when I'm stunned than when I'm not stunned. And the fact that the voices are worse is kind of irrelevant because the voices are there anyway all the time. But that's what doctors are fascinated by voices, but most schizophrenics actually have a rest of their life to lead. 
And so we're, we're actually taking a very punitive view of, of people who've actually gotten very little else in life other than cannabis to deal with their symptoms. And many stimulant users have ADHD as well. And cannabis has been a medicinal product in most countries for about 4,000 years. It's the oldest medicinal product. It was banned, it was legal until 1971 when two GPs in London started prescribing it off license to people saying, drop it on your cigarettes, let it dry out, smoke the cannabis. And the government's response was to say, okay, well, we will ban cannabis completely because that will stop people misusing it. An absurd situation because it's denied access to patients. As I showed you, it was a 20-fold increase in use anyway, so it had no impact on use, might have promoted use. And yet, but it shows this peculiar fascination that governments have on making laws to ban things. And cannabis was an extremely popular drug with Queen Victoria. She swore by it, she used it for menstrual cramps, she used it to deal with the pains of pregnancy. And maybe she had so many children because she enjoyed it as well, I don't know. So that was then, 100 years ago. Where have we gone today? Well, here's the war on cannabis today. This is a true story. This is a Scottish teacher in her 50s, retired because of multiple sclerosis. She's wheelchair-bound. She grows her own cannabis to deal with her problems. Three times, the Scottish police have broken down her front door in a dawn raid. I mean, it's as if she could run away anywhere. But it is, that's the problem. When you fight wars, actually people like fighting wars because they can be very macho. They can break down doors. A lot of people like that sort of thing. You know, it's fun for them. And she may well go to prison because she, cause if she, every time she gets arrested, she's caught in possession and she gets convicted. And one of the really nastiest, perhaps the nastiest thing the last government did was this thing. They denied the medical defence. Until 2005, if you were caught with cannabis and you were using it to deal with spasticity or pain, you could say... It's the only thing that works. And then the government put a lot of pressure on the law lords, saying, we don't like this. So the law lords just said, that defence of necessity, I had to take it for my own health, was banned. You can no longer plead that. You're not allowed to say that in court. You have to say, I had it, and you get convicted. And you may then have your assets seized under the Proceeds of Crime Act. We... A truly atrocious, atrocious piece of lawmaking. And I presume it was driven by government pressure. And it really does... I mean, it's, it's as if we've gone back 100 years. You know, we actually... We have sort of Victorian attitude to crime in the 21st century. But there are other reasons people want drugs illegal. This is the key one, which is not discussed much, but it's the principle that basically young people shouldn't have fun. And this is where I want to have the debate... Because I am sick to death of politicians pretending that they're talking about health when they're talking about morality. And the smokescreen about cannabis and ecstasy and health is all about avoiding having the moral discussion. And of course, that that often gets clouded by public opinion. And politicians really, they want public opinion to be what they want it to be. Um, And it's often really quite complicated. And even when when you showed politicians, as we did, that the majority of the public think cannabis should be legal, they don't, that's not right, the right kind of public opinion. They've got to have the public opinion that, that really serves their purposes, which feeds into their prejudice. And I'm going to give you a beautiful example of how public opinion is made. 
And this is the media reporting of drugs in the last decade of the last century. And this is a PhD from a Scottish student, Alistair Forsyth, who looked at every single coroner's death in Scotland and took all the ones in which a drug was found in the body and then looked to see whether those deaths were reported in the newspapers. And he found 2,255 deaths, of which about 546 were reported. About one in four deaths, whether there's a drug other than alcohol, any some other drug was reported. So one in four deaths get reported. But there's a huge imbalance in terms of the drugs. So only one of 265 paracetamol deaths were reported. Now those are almost certainly, they almost all died from paracetamol. And these would be, a lot of them would be young people who'd, be, who'd actually be depressed or unhappy or drunk. But they died of that drug. But no one's interested in them. Paracetamol, well, you know, we just, well, you know, we all take it, don't we? And then there were drugs, there's uh, diazepam, temazepam, not very interested in those. Then there are a few deaths where amphetamine was associated. We don't know if amphetamine killed them, but it was present at death. And the newspaper's much more interested, one in three of them, even though there's very few of them. And then you have uh, cocaine, one in eight, heroin, one in five, methadone, one in 16. But the one that was most remarkable was ecstasy. Every ecstasy death was reported. So people think ecstasy is killing loads of people because that's all they read about. And it's absurd. And why is that? Why is that happening? Well, we, when we did the ACMD, did the ecstasy review, it was held in public. And newspapers were there because they're very interested in ecstasy, as I've shown you. And I took the opportunity to ask the journalist. I said, look, now you, you finish asking us questions. I want to ask you a question. Why are you so obsessed with ecstasy? And they didn't like being asked questions because that's, you know, they're not, that's not their job to answer questions. But um, they scratched their heads and they said, well, we don't know, but it probably because it's kind of white middle class girls that are dying, isn't it? And you think, well, that probably is the truth. And it doesn't bear any balance. It's just that it's something that they, they, uh, they know will sell newspapers like the Mail and the Sun. Well, that was then. This is now. This is last year. If you go on the website and look for Mephidrone, MCAT, Drone, Meow Meow, whatever, and look for deaths, you'll find Gabby. Now, Gabby was a 14-year-old who collapsed at a house party, and a neighbour helpfully said to the paramedics and the police, she's probably been taking Mephidrone and ketamine. Um, unfortunately, she died of bronchopneumonia, and I do wonder whether the misleading contribution of the neighbours might have actually contributed to a death because we know when people get taken into accident in emergency departments labelled as druggies doctors and nurses tend to put them to the bottom of the waiting list so if they go in bronchopneumonia they tend to go to the top of the list so it's possible that she was actually her death was accelerated by the misinformation of her neighbour but anyway she didn't die of mephidrone even though she is on the website as the first death and then there's Scunthorpe too. These are, this is a remarkable story. One of the most surreal conversations in my life. I was in a taxi going from Barcelona Airport to Barcelona to give a lecture. And I got a phone call from CNN. And I'd done an interview with them a few days before on Mephidrone. And they said, where's Scunthorpe? <laughs> I said, sorry. What, what, what? I know it's early in the morning. But what was? They said, there's an international... The, the, the Humberside police are having an international press conference because there had been two deaths on Mephidrone. I said, that just cannot be, that's just in, impossible. 
He said, well, we're going. So where is it? So I said, up the M1, four hours, turn right. I think it was right. And they went to the press conference. At the press conference, they heard that the police thought the men, that these young men had taken MCAT, methadone, possibly methadone. They'd been drinking heavily on a Sunday night right till two o'clock on a Monday morning. And Nick's dad wept as he urged youngsters to avoid the drug. This drug. I don't want him to be labelled a druggie. Because he wasn't. He was on a night out with his friends enjoying himself. A normal, caring, hard-working dad. Now, all that is true except for this. Because he was a druggie. Because he was an alcohol druggie. And it's almost certain that the alcohol killed him. We, know, we knew quite soon that they hadn't taken methadone at all. Even though the drug... Had we didn't know that until the drug was banned. They kept that back from us until they banned the drug. And in fact, we discovered it was alcohol and methadone. And I suspect they were so drunk that when they asked for methadone, they got given methadone and they died. And here's the last death. This girl died the day of the ban. And um, as her mother rather graphically said, she didn't. She, they said, suggested she'd taken it. She hadn't. There's no toxicology. All the speculation it was methadone must have been lies, but I was totally convinced. And that's what the media does for you. They lie about drugs. She actually, again, died of methadone and alcohol. But methadone was banned the next day, despite no proven deaths and no real knowledge of its pharmacology and toxicology. Now, you might say, so what? Well, it can't do any good, can it? I mean, you know, why shouldn't we ban it? You know, it, it can't do any harm banning it, can it? It must do good. Well, let's just look at the evidence. One of the paradoxes of the methadone epidemic was it saved people dying from cocaine. At least 40, might be 100 fewer cocaine deaths because cocaine users switched to methadone. 1,200 fewer soldiers were kicked out of the army for testing positive for cocaine because cocaine urine tests dropped precipitously. And that's a good thing because we've actually... It costs a lot of money to train up soldiers and... Um, Kicking them out after you've trained them up just because they've taken a bit of cocaine doesn't make much sense. There was £600,000 income from import duty on methadone. And the interesting question is what's going to happen now it's illegal? Well, we know the price has gone up. We know there's been an increase in crime. Some of you may have read our report this week that 60% of people still using it and 40% have switched either back to cocaine or, or MDMA. And what's going to happen next year? Are we going to start kicking out more soldiers? Well, I guess we'll sack them before we test them this time now. So that's an unexpected paradoxical benefit of a drug. Could the same be true of other drugs? This is my favourite example, LSD. Now, the two most influential Nobel Prizes in medicine in the last century are those two. Discovery of DNA and the discovery of the PCR reaction. And both of those were discovered as a result of taking LSD before LSD was illegal. And I just think, you know, maybe we're miss, you know, maybe there are opportunities. Maybe there that they wouldn't have been discovered if LSD was illegal. I don't know. And I'll give you some other examples. Apart from the cannabis one I've shown you, but many banned drugs have potential therapeutic uses. There's ecstasy for trauma therapy. Did you see the TV program on ecstasy, which showed an amazing interview with a woman who was able to to deal with the, the anger that she had about her husband dying of cancer because under ecstasy. Psilocybin for depression, what we're trying to do, LSD for terminal illness, helping people come to terms with dying. There was huge interest in LSD in the, for terminal counselling before it was banned. It was, there's a lot of evidence it works. 
And of course, as soon as it's banned, it becomes impossible or very, very difficult to work with. So we've denied 40, 50 years of people dying who might have benefited. And methadone and naphthorone, they were being developed, or the chemical structures of them are part of antidepressant structures. And some of these drugs are developed as new treatments for depression and addiction, and they will no longer be developed because when a drug, once a drug is banned or a chemical series is banned, it's impossible to work with. And that gets me to my last point, which is how harmful should a drug be to be banned? Because we've got to make some sort of decision about it, if we, you know, if we, unless we want a, a complete free-for-all, which we may end up getting, but I guess a lot, most of us don't want a completely open market in all drugs. Well, I've wrestled with this for a long time. I mean, there are things that people do which are dangerous, uh, particularly if you're on the boat, and um, one up there. Um, we mitigate the harms to some extent by making people ride uh, with motorbikes with helmets. These people think that I might help them if they fall, but they won't. <laughs> I've often considered that alcohol should be the, uh, the comparison. Things that are less harmful than alcohol perhaps should be at least available in a regulated fashion. And by the way, for those of you who aren't chemists, the other E is ethanol, alcohol. Of course, there are other harms. This is what I warn the young people about. Um, that's my friend Melanie. And um, it's a very dangerous thing to do. But actually, it'll upset you, reading the day, because you'll think things are more harmful than they are. But then there's horse riding. And this is, of course, the one that kind of propelled me into notoriety. Um, and I want to tell you the story because I'm a doctor, I'm a psychiatrist, I treat people with brain injury. A lot of them have serious behavioural problems. And I saw a woman of about 37 who'd fallen off a horse, smashed her frontal lobes, behaviour had changed dramatically. Uh, she, they'd taken away her two children, she'd lost her job, and she was so disinhibited that she could hardly live in the local village. Uh, and I treated her, and I treated her with amphetamine. Because often amphetamine does put back some measure of control in the brains of damaged brains. Difficult thing to do because it's an illegal drug, but I still did it. Um, it helped her a bit, but it was never going to restore the damaged brain. But I started researching how dangerous is horse riding, and all sorts of things happen. People die about 30 a year, 20, 30 a year. They get spinal transection. That's how Christopher Reeves died when he fell off his horse, Superman. They get brain damage, and they get lots of money. I mean, horse riding is actually an extraordinarily dangerous thing. Every rider knows someone who's died riding. So I also realised that a lot of people get hooked on riding. And um, they like riding. They can't stop. They're addicted. So I came up with this syndrome, the equine addiction syndrome. And um, if you compare, you read that paper, it's free online. You can compare and contrast the harms of ecstasy and the harms of horse riding. Horse riding currently is more dangerous than ecstasy. Particularly the horses drink. That paper was published, it came into the public domain on a Friday morning. On the, the Monday afternoon, I was in my clinic where I'd seen the woman, and I got a phone call from the Home Secretary, Jackie Smith. And uh, after a certain sort of uh, period of um, incandescence, you might say, we settled down to a discussion, and uh, you have to work out which are her words and which are mine. But um, the content was this, you can't compare harms for an illegal activity with an illegal one. Oh, why not? Because one's illegal. Why is it illegal? Because it's harmful. But don't we need to compare harms to determine if it should be illegal? The things I put in there, I think that's what was going on. Um, you can't compare harms from an illegal activity with a legal one. And that's so absurd. And yet that's how politicians think. 
because I've talked to a lot of politicians and they agree, once it's illegal, you cannot reason with it. Once someone's got a criminal record, you won't employ them. You know, there are prejudices, illegality creates a set of prejudices which are unassailable by even by sensible people's reason. So that was her, well she's gone thankfully, but we still have the problem. So some of you may have seen the uh, programme we did a few weeks ago where we gave psilocybin to a, uh, as part of our experiments, to a BBC um, presenter, Michael Mosley. And there was a question in the House of Commons from this MP, Jim Dobbin, who said, why was Professor Nutt allowed to use an illegal drug in a scientific study? Now, if you want an example of going back to the Dark Ages, an MP not understanding the, <laughs> because he's made a drug illegal, it, it, it still could be useful and interesting and important. And that really, really says to me that we've got a massive problem. The MPs just cannot get their heads around what they're doing in terms of legality. And I guess he's going to stop me from prescribing amphetamines to people with brain injury soon, because they're illegal too. I mean, it is so absurd. I couldn't believe that, that an MP could actually ever be that stupid. However, in the drug field, scientists are also somewhat or can be somewhat biased. This is a great Dilbert cartoon. I need three bitter and unsuccessful scientists and a hundred lazy journalists. Any of those here? Very good. That's... Did you know that toddlers thrive on pollution? Yeah, of course you do. Now, alcohol is perfectly safe. and Ecstasy causes brain damage and cannabis causes... So si some of the science around drug misuse is execrable. Some of it's actually almost actionable. Um, but... The journals love it because they get lots of citations and they, the newspapers love it because it proves that drugs are harmful. So that's the past, that's the problems, that's the criticism of what's gone on. Uh, I've got lots of ideas of how we can go forward. These are, I'm not going to go through all of them. They're mostly on my website, uh, in my blogs. There are many sensible things we can do about drugs. We can actually, we can make a big difference by stopping criminalising people, by giving independent experts the decision-making over drug control and drug regulation. Uh, we can do things like bring in a holding class, like a Class D, where drugs may be accessible with monitored use. And we should also <laughs> encourage people to be able to use drugs which have been banned irrationally, uh, or like MDMA, to help patients who need it. I've also got a few more radical options, which I don't suppose will come out in my lifetime, but they might in yours. The Dutch have a testing facility. They have 12 hospitals where you can go. You won't be arrested. You take your drug along and you say, what is it? And they say, come back in two days. And they, when you go back, they say, it's this. And by the way, if you take it, these are the dangers you might have. So, you know, just be warned. And that is a great mechanism for public education about harm reduction. But it's also a great way of finding out what people are taking. In Britain, we do not have any systematic gathering of that kind of information. And when I was chair of the ACMD and I said to the Home Secretary, Jackie Smith, why don't we talk to the Dutch to see if there is something we could learn from them? She said, no. We know all we need to know. Lock them up. Um, and there are some other, as I say, radical things like I quite like to make a safe alcohol because, you know, people like to be intoxicated, but acetaldehyde, which is the name of tabulite of alcohol, will always rot you. And then maybe we could make a safe ecstasy. You know, maybe, you know, and that could actually have a huge value in therapy. So, I was sacked, but that, as you gathered, hasn't shut me up. 
In fact, it's probably maybe more vociferous. Um, I've set up this independent scientific committee. Uh, seven of the members of the ACMD who resigned, most of the scientists resigned when I was sacked and they joined my committee. We have a very, very high quality group of people. We have a website, drugscience.org. You can read my blogs there as well uh, at WordPress. And uh, if you want to know basically what the truth is about drugs, I suggest you use that site because it's completely free of any kind of political interference. And before I take questions, I want to leave you with two quotes. The top one I didn't know about until I was sacked, but I realised that uh, he was there a long time before me. And, um, and the bottom one, of course, is the principle on which we think, I think all laws should be made. Thank you very much.